another edition of Free Exchange. No, I'm going to start over. Welcome to another edition of the Free Exchange podcast. I'm Michael Jarr, Senior Vice President at the Badger Institute, and I'm joined today by Remzo Martinez, who is battling influenza. Uh, Remzo, how's it, how's it going? Did you know that the flu was still a thing? <laughs> like I, I, didn't, I got I got COVID at the beginning of the year. I got my shots, and like a few weeks after that, I I feel like I'm just having a bad cold. And then when I stop tasting things, I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I got Delta or whatever? So I got I got tested. You know, they they swabbed my brain and everything, and they looked at me. They're like, good news, you don't have COVID. Bad news, you have the current the strain of the flu. And I'm like, I didn't think the flu still existed anymore. It's a strange, guess what? I got it. <laughs> it's a strange uh, day and age when it's good news that you have the flu. I, I, I called my parents and I told them, hey, I don't have COVID again. I just have the flu. And they're like, you know, you're the first person like a year and a half we've heard who've said that. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. I feel about that statement, but okay. We may need to lock things down for a couple of weeks to... Uh, to see if it'll pass. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad you're able to join us, uh, even though you're a little croaky. Um, and our guest today- Some would say Darth Vader-like, but okay. Darth Vader-like, that does sound, James Earl Jones does sound better than croaky. Um, our guest today is the tireless Angela Rashidi. Angela is a Badger Institute visiting fellow and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, DC. She is also founder and principal of Rashidi Research and Consulting, LLC. In her work, uh, Angela studies the impact of safety net programs on low-income families and individuals, which is the topic of our discussion today. She researches the effects of government policies and programs on employment, child well-being, family income, and economic mobility. Before joining AEI, Angela was the Deputy Commissioner for Policy Research at the New York City Department of Social Services. I bet you loved telling people that uh, at parties. <laughs> so her knowledge of these issues that we're going to be discussing today is not merely an academic one. She has seen and worked firsthand with federal safety net programs, uh, how they're implemented at the state level, and uh, directly working with the and, and, and observing and um, measuring the incentives and disincentives that they can create for recipients. Angela is also the mother of four young children. So when I called her tireless at the beginning, I was probably lying. <laughs> Angela, great to have you. Thank you, Michael and Remzo. It's great to be with you. I'm COVID free and flu free, so I'm feeling good. Lucky. That's fantastic. Everyone just well, throwing their health in my face. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Angela, we're bringing you um, on our uh, podcast today to discuss a policy brief that you wrote for the Badger Institute uh, just a few weeks back um, titled Employment and the Safety Net During the Pandemic, which can be found at badgerinstitute.org. Um, so you looked at the kind of the, the three programs, the three uh, primary um, safety net programs um, that uh, that are funded by the feds um, and to look at the impact that they have on the employment situation as the economy rebounds in Wisconsin. So can you tell us, what did you find? 
Sure. Um, so as, as you mentioned, I mean, my background is in social services. And so I research and evaluate federal safety net programs. And so part of my motivation behind doing this policy brief was just what we're all hearing about the very tight labor market and the shortage of workers that many businesses um, are finding and, and kind of how are we going to get our economy back on track, given um, just the, the tremendous uh, harm that the pandemic created, um, and just how do we get things back to normal. And so based on kind of my expertise in those programs, I wanted to take a look at how are these government programs actually influencing the labor market? Um, and is it contributing to this problem that we're seeing? Um, and so I did, I focused on three programs. Um, one is the unemployment insurance uh, program, which is usually state um, funded and, and operated. Um, but as we know, during the pandemic, uh, the federal government uh, administered a federal uh, program on top of those state level programs. Um, so I looked at unemployment insurance. Uh, I also looked at the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, which is also known as food stamps, but it's the country's largest food assistance program for low-income households. Um, it provides a monthly benefit, um, and it also was expanded greatly during the pandemic to address the economic uh, fallout from uh, some of the, the mitigation efforts for the pandemic. And then the third program I looked at was the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program. And that's what we, um, it's, we call it TANF, um, but it's basically the traditional cash welfare program in the country um, for very low income uh, families with children. Um, and it's kind of the the cash assistance of last resorts type program um, for people who maybe can't get unemployment insurance um, and really have no other income that they can access. So I looked at those three programs and in particular the, the growth um, and really the trajectory of those programs in Wisconsin during the pandemic. Um, and like I said, which trying to answer this question of how have these programs interacted um, and could they help explain some of the issues that the state like many states in the country are facing in terms of trying to, to get enough workers um, for, for the businesses in the state. And so I found some kind of interesting patterns in those programs and, and somewhat contradictory. So in terms of unemployment insurance, kind of followed what you would expect. So we look at what we call continuing claims, which is basically, um, it basically means people who are receiving uh, uh, unemployment insurance claims or unemployment insurance benefits. Um, we saw a huge increase, obviously, as people lost jobs um, shortly after the pandemic hit in terms of lockdowns created a lot of businesses um, to lay off workers um, and those workers turned to unemployment insurance. So not surprisingly, we saw a huge increase in those claims. Um, and then once things started to get back online, we saw a, a decline. Um, and again, kind of like you would expect. So the, the interesting thing, though, is that the, although we did see a decline as the unemployment rate improved, um, we still, at least with the most recent um, month of data, we're still relatively elevated from where we were pre-pandemic. Um, and as many listeners might know, the federal programs kind of expired at the beginning of September um, of 2021. So we would expect some of those unemployment insurance numbers to come down even more as, as those start to expire. The other two programs I mentioned, um, SNAP and TANF, we saw kind of, and we're still seeing a very different trajectory 
both programs increased um, and increased quite dramatically um, in terms of SNAP. Uh, again, that's um, some people might know it as food stamps. We saw an increase in participation of about 30% um, in TANF, a little bit more of a delay in the increase, but also quite a large increase in uh, households receiving those benefits. What we have not seen is a decline that you would expect to see as the economy improved. Uh, so just to remind listeners, or for those who don't know, I mean, the unemployment rate in Wisconsin spiked to about 14.9%, I think, at the peak. Um, so that was in April after the pandemic hit. Um, just yeah, a huge spike in unemployment. Yeah, of 2020, right. So so a long time ago, but that was the peak. And then since then has come down dramatically. And I think the most recent month, um, it was 3.9%. So just a dramatic increase and then a dramatic decline um, because of what was going on with the pandemic. In terms of SNAP, um, we are still uh, 30% higher than we were at the beginning of the pandemic. And it has not come down. Um, it just continues to increase. Same thing with TANF, just continues to increase. And there's a few different reasons for that. We can certainly talk about that, but I think the main point is that these are government benefits, resources going into households um, that are intended to be a safety net when households are out of work or have income shocks from temporary unemployment. And what we're seeing is that more and more households are receiving these benefits. Um, and I think the concern it raises is to what extent is it actually keeping people from re-entering the labor market. Yeah, the um, it, it does. It seems counterintuitive. You would expect that demand for these programs would go up as uh, the uh, the shutdowns, you know, had their uh, effect as as businesses were shuttered. But once the economy really, you know, kind of roared back, um, unemployment, uh, you know, numbers dropped significantly. It's uh, it's surprising to see that uh, the trajectory of these federal programs. Uh, is, is, is continues to go up, or at least hasn't hasn't declined. Um, one uh, theory uh, that you've uh, postulated is that the uh, government um, was increasing the benefits at the same time that it was loosening um, some of the uh, requirements. Uh, is, talk a little bit about that. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's kind of a recipe. It's exactly the recipe for the kind of trajectory that we've seen. Um, so in terms of uh, benefit levels, um, the federal government did a few things throughout the pandemic. Uh, one is they did these what they called emergency allotments, which basically recognize that, again, in the midst of the pandemic, when things were locking down and, and people were staying home, it was recognized that the traditional model of receiving benefits, where you go into an office, you apply or you recertify for benefits in front of a worker, like that was just obviously not going to happen. Um, so they relaxed many of the requirements around how to access benefits as well as how to maintain your benefits over time. And what, that, what the implication of that are is that people who otherwise would have had to go through that process and maybe um, the agency determined that they weren't eligible because their income was too high or household size change, whatever it was, they didn't go through that process. So you had a uh, elevated caseload just because the process changed. Um, and so that was going on. And at the same time, these emergency allotment, allotments brought every household up to the maximum SNAP amount. 
um, not to get into too many of the details, but a snap, like a benefit level that a household gets in the month depends on income coming into the household. So if there's no income in the household, you get the, the maximum SNAP benefit. If there's some income in the household, whether it's from employment, um, social security, any other form of income, you get a slightly reduced SNAP benefit because the expectation is that other income in the household is supposed to help support food purchases. So what, we, what the federal government during the pandemic, though, is they just raised everybody up to that maximum. So what that meant is that uh, uh, almost, I think it was about 60% of households got more in SNAP benefits than they mm. did prior to the pandemic. So at the same time, we had change in the rules. So we had more people receiving SNAP. We also saw um, the vast majority of households receive more money than they would have received pre-pandemic. So it kind of created this combination of issues that just increased the, the reach of the program at the same time as it increase the incentive for people to maintain their participation in the program um, and replace the need for other income sources. Folks, I'm interrupting real quick to remind you that productions like these are only able to exist with support from individuals just like you. If you find value in this program, we're hoping you may want to give just a little bit of value back. The Badger Institute is a nonprofit organization that strives to create opportunity and protect liberty for all Wisconsinites. We do not accept government funding and rely solely on the generosity of individuals like yourself to support our policy and advocacy work. To learn more or make a donation, visit badgerinstitute.org. So early on, um, like the unemployment insurance, for instance, uh, that is normally a state funded um, program, but the, the uh, federal government got involved, uh, but they didn't just uh, get involved. They added a significant supplement, a bonus, if you will, um, that uh, was initially $600 uh, a week. Is that right? Um, yes, initially. On top, of, on top of what you would be getting uh, in your normal unemployment insurance. Uh, that was uh, supposed to sunset or expire uh, after six months. President Trump extended that. Then under uh, President Biden and this Congress, it's been, it was extended again at three, the level of $300 per week and extended again all the way through this September. Um, the result was that an awful lot of people could stay at home, do their laundry, watch their kids, uh, binge watch TV, uh, work in the yard, or do, do whatever it might have been, but um, make as much or more money doing that than they uh, would have if they had uh, gone, gone back and, and sought their, their jobs. Yes, and that's always the concern with government benefits like that. Um, and there's quite a bit of research on the unemployment insurance program during normal times, not even during the pandemic, that does suggest that if the, that the generosity of those benefits matter, as well as the duration of how, of how long they're available, um, because it can be a disincentive to work. Um, as soon as you change the calculus for workers and if they can uh, make, certainly if they can make more money not working than working, they will take that option, um, which was the case, especially when there was the $600 top off of benefits. Um, but even if, even if they can um, not, even if they don't make quite as much money on unemployment insurance, there's just, there's other benefits that are available to households that also change that calculus. So what the real problem during the pandemic was, is you not only had the this federal top off of unemployment insurance, but at the same time, the federal government 
was also providing more in SNAP benefits, was also providing economic impact payments, was also doing these other things that just provided a great deal of financial uh, resources into households. Now, don't get me wrong. We were in the middle of a pandemic, um, at least early on in the pandemic, um, that with through the, the lockdowns and all of that, there was a need for economic support from the federal government. So that was, that was certainly true. But I think the real question is how long did those measures stay in place? And at what point were those measures a little bit um, of overkill or over, they were actually disincentivizing people from working instead of providing that safety net that that they were originally intended to do. And I think now that we are 18 months into it and that we have an unemployment rate of 3.9%, I think that many people agree that we are well past the time where we need those emergency measures to keep people economically whole. And we really need to shift into thinking how can we get uh, labor force participation up and how do we get more people into the labor force? Yeah, I mean, I I just remember when Steve Mnuchin, uh, prior Secretary of Treasury, was talking about the the, uh, direct cash payments, the stimulus checks for people. At one point during a conference, he said something which I feel a lot of folks were thinking at the time, which is we'd rather look back five years from now and say, wow, we did too much versus look back five years from now and say, oh, we did too little. And it seems that, you know, now we're starting to ease out of that and nobody wants to confront the facts that, you know, people aren't coming off of it. The economy is changing. When you look at labor participation across the United States, when you look at the at the uncontrollable rate of inflation we're seeing right now, where monetary supply is being destroyed. I mean, it, it's one of these situations where, you know, the, the medicine seems to be causing more issues than the actual disease, which was, you know, to, to, to you know, just I'm not talking COVID. I'm talking specifically the fact that the government shut down businesses. They locked people out of their livelihoods. And now we're wondering why people don't want to go back to work. Yes, exactly. And I think the duration really is the key there because you're right. Um, I think there was a real concern about doing too little. Um, And so there was a sense that, well, you know, we can't really do too much. Um, and maybe that was true in the first, even the first year. Um, and, and there was, a, if everyone remembers, there was a December 2020 package when um, President Trump was still president. And that was a bipartisan package. And that even extended some unemployment insurance and did another economic impact payment, which maybe I wouldn't have necessarily supported, but it's what they did. Um, I think the real concern is there was another package in March of 2021 that was even larger than that package. And that's where I think you do run the risk of, of um, kind of overstimulating the economy. And we even, you know, we are experiencing the implications of that now. Um, and some people say, oh, it wasn't the unemployment insurance. The evidence suggests that didn't really matter. And it wasn't, you know, these these specific policies, but when you add all of these policies up, I think it does really, it really explains why we're in a situation we're in today in terms of um, a small or a a labor supply that's not uh, meeting uh, the needs of of our businesses. And part of the issue from in my mind is we have seen this huge uh, exodus of older workers from the labor force uh, and that with early retirements or just retirements in general. And I don't think we can discount 
the effects of government assistance for those workers. Um, so they were out of work for a long time. Like what it would require for them to re-enter the labor force was already going to be challenging because they were older workers and just experienced a pandemic. When you add into that all of this government assistance that um, was available to them and continues to be available to them, I think we shouldn't be surprised at all that this is how we've ended up. And and you can't walk um, down. You can't walk through a downtown. You can't drive through a commercial strip without seeing help wanted signs on almost every business, large or small. Um, we heard from the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce uh, that their latest um, internal survey showed that nine out of ten, almost nine out of ten of their employees employers were were trying to hire. Um, so at that point, and we're seeing that nationwide, given that. And, and, and given that we do have people that continue to take advantage of these uh, safety net programs, Angela, what needs to be done to correct the situation? What, if, if, what should lawmakers, what should Governor Evers be doing that could help turn this around? Yeah, that's actually, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question because it really isn't just one thing. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a number of things that have to happen and, and it's also not only the responsibility of government. Um, so certainly the, the first thing um, would be to roll back government assistance um, for households. Uh, and that includes house uh, or benefits for low-income households like SNAP, TANF. Um, and I wouldn't even say roll it back. It just means returning it to where it was pre-pandemic, um, re-implementing rules and requirements that existed before the pandemic um, and returning benefit levels to where they were um, uh, prior to the pandemic. So there's that um, unemployment insurance, the federal programs have already expired. So we might see some effects um, on that. I think employers um, are, have a role, obviously, and they've already responded in terms of uh, increasing wages. We've say, seen uh, wage increases across the board. Um, so they're responding in that way. But I think the real trick, and this is where government probably isn't in the best position to influence this um, problem, is that employers and employees need to come to an understanding, again, of that kind of relationship that they need to have. Employers might need to provide more flexibility to workers um, in terms of the type of work environment they want to be in. And workers also have to, to um, kind of go back to understanding that they do have a shared responsibility with their employers in uh, ensuring that the employers can do business um, and make money so that they can have a job. So I think that there's, we just not need to kind of take a step back and reestablish these relationships um, that we had prior to the pandemic. Uh, push back just a little bit, because I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I, 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 you know, I try and avoid the news. I try and listen to experts, you know, like yourself. But the one thing that always tells me the real health of an economy is the state of my local McDonald's. If I want to know how inflation is doing, I look at the price of a Big Mac. I think Warren Buffett actually called it the Big Mac index. If you want to know how the how inflation is going, go look at the price of that. But, you know, I also drive by my local McDonald's on the way to work and they they need people. Um, they've had to go ahead and, you know, sh uh, shift their hours. I mean, McDonald's across the country used to be 24 hours. Now I think the most recent hours are for like from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., which is still a lot. It's not 24 hours, though. That That's a that's a big difference. It, it comes to the point where with this, I mean, we look pre-pandemic, you had people, you know, a, a adult aged men and women who were working at McDonald's asking for a living wage of $15 or an hour. Now I see that and people still don't want to go work. 
And now what we're seeing right now, and, and the trucking industry took a big turn uh, during the lockdowns and everything else. People really began to understand that. But now we're looking at automation and everything more. Um, you know, this this shift to telework, the shift towards uh, more automated uh, services and stuff like that. It, it seems that only so much can be done. Ultimately, people need to work. And this whole, well, I don't want to go work. I don't want to do that job. It gets to the point where it's like this, you, you staying at home might make you feel better, but it's costing your community way more than you even consider at this point. It, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's our fault, but really th this is the bed that we've made. Well, I think, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, and I think it'll, it will be interesting to see when we get to that point that some of the people who have left the labor force, will they decide or realize that they actually do need to start working? I mean, I think what we've seen is we've definitely seen a shrinkage of the labor supply. Um, so fewer people are in the labor force altogether. Um, it's mostly those older workers that I mentioned, but the, the reason they can leave the labor force is because they obviously must have other resources. And I think that some of that is still, um, still lingering effects of the pandemic. Um, so savings rates increased tremendously during the pandemic because people were just not spending money on things they normally would spend money on, going out, gas, whatever it is, savings rates really increased quite dramatically. You add to that the amount of uh, economic resources from the government that were provided to households, whether it's unemployment insurance or economic stimulus payments, the new expanded child tax credit. There's just a lot of re economic resources going into households. So I think that there are plenty of resources in some of these households that allow people not to work. Will that allow them to permanently leave the labor force, I think, is still a question. I think a lot of people feel like you, Remzo, like how can it be that these wages are relatively high, especially compared to what it was pre-pandemic, and still businesses cannot find workers? I think that we we may, I mean, we were already on a trajectory to see um, labor force participation decline because of the aging population and because of retirements. The pandemic has accelerated that. So we're going to have to either figure out how to function in um, an environment with a low labor force participation rate. And that's where you get into automation, businesses trying to figure out how to do more with fewer workers. But that's also a long-term trend. Or are we going to see wages increase, benefits increase to the point that those people who maybe prematurely left the labor force, maybe they'll come back? And I don't think we know the answer to that quite yet. Um, I think we need a little bit of time to let um, some of these things work themselves out. Um, I mean, we didn't talk at all about some of the supply chain issues, which is another <laughs> another issue. Oh, it's going to be kind a of weird wreaking Christmas. havoc <laughs> on the economy, right? And that I think is having some labor labor effects as well. So I think we still, and, and we're still, you know, dealing with the pandemic. Um, you know, it hasn't, COVID hasn't gone away. So I, and some people are still fear, fearful of, of returning back to work. So I do think we need a little bit of time to let some of these things play out. Um, but I certainly think there's enough there that we should be concerned and we should start thinking about how these long-term policy decisions might affect um, the economy as a whole. Angela, when you were at the New York Department of Social Services, um, and I, I think you were there overlapping with some of the Giuliana, Giuliani era and the uh, Bloomberg era, but you, 
you and, and the, the team you worked with there really accomplished some, some remarkable things. Um, you brought cash welfare, the cash welfare caseload down from 1.1 million to 347,000. That's a staggering drop in, in, the, in our largest city. That's a lot of how, Big Macs. It's a lot of Big Macs. How did, how did you do that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I actually started in New York City right at the beginning of Mayor Bloomberg's um, term, uh, first term. So it was 2002. um, And Mayor Giuliani had implemented welfare reform starting in around 1997, 98. Um, And so when I arrived, we were about four years into it. Um, And we were still, though, at about 800,000 welfare recipients in New York City. Um, But it had been coming down. Um, I mean, the main the main driving force behind that declining cash welfare was federal welfare reform, where it completely changed the calculus where people who were going to receive cash welfare from uh, the government had a work expectation. Uh, so there were work requirements that were put into place. Uh, we had programs for people where in order to receive their benefits, they had to participate either in uh, a job preparation activity, education training, um, something that was related to getting a job. And so what we saw happen is that it was not so much, pe- I mean, we saw people leaving welfare. So it was kind of like the people who, had capabilities to work, it very quickly became clear to them that they were much better off working um, and earning a wage than they were receiving cash welfare because they were spending time doing job training or doing whatever anyway. So those people very quickly left the welfare roles and went into the labor market and earned their own living. And then there were supports provided to them through our agency, like food assistance, childcare, all of that. But they were able to very quickly leave. Um, what we were, and then we also saw fewer people coming into the system because they also were making that same calculus that why why would I go receive cash welfare from the government if I'm capable of working and earning a wage? So we had you know, many fewer people coming into the system. So what happened over time, the people who were remaining were those people who really struggled in the labor market, really had difficulties with employment. And that's why we had programs set up for them to try to help them get over those barriers and get into the labor market. But so really it was a fairly simple formula that if you have work expectations, expectations um, and you condition assistance on those work expectations, more people are going to find a job uh, and go into the labor market and they prefer to earn their own wage. That's, that's a great model. Um, I want to, I want to wrap up with something that you've said and and written uh, for us before. Um, You said that work is the most effective anti-poverty program that there is. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I firmly believe that. I mean, I'm a Wisconsin native, kind of grew up with those those kind of Midwestern values um, that hard work um, is how you how you get ahead. Um, and I think that that is really true um, for really everyone. Um, it's it is about employment, and there's certainly you know I'm not naive in thinking that employment is going to be a path of prosperity for everyone. But we have set up government supports that if you are a working person, um, you certainly have the opportunity uh, to get ahead. And so I think that everything we do from a 
a public policy perspective needs to start with a focus on employment. How do we get people employed? How do we help them stay employed? Because in my view, um, and I think that the, the evidence backs this up, when people have employment in their household, they benefit not only from the income that it provides, but the dignity it provides, the mental health um, aspects, the positive mental health aspects it provides, the socialization that it provides. There's just so many important aspects to employment that that should be the foundation of our public policies, along with supporting strong families so that people can work and take care of their families. Absolutely. You uh, wrote for us in a, I think it was a 2020 report that uh, you looked at some numbers in 2017 and then found that among Wisconsin adults who worked full-time that year, only 2% were below the poverty line compared to 18, almost 19% who did not work at all that year. So if, if you're working, uh, it makes a real difference um, in, uh, in getting, helping you to, to rise above um, your, your circumstances. So Angela, it's been great to uh, have you on. Um, again, the most recent uh, research that Angela has provided for us is a policy brief titled Employment and the Safety Net During the Pandemic, which can be found at www.badgerinstitute.org. Great to have you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening to this episode. And please, if you want to go ahead and spread this message of free dialogue, open discourse, new ideas, topics that do matter to each and every one of us, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you're listening to this show right now. Each and every review and rating matters. As always, I'm Remso W. Martinez from the Badger Institute, signing off. Free Exchange is a Badger Institute production, copyright 2021.